Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the last chapter in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. If you do not uh, have a Bible, please feel free to grab one at the back at the coffee bar. That's our gift to you. We are in 1 John chapter 5, the last chapter. So today and next week, we will finish up this chapter. Logan will be preaching next week, so that will be much to look forward to. Right, sir? Is he in here? Yes? Yes. All right. 1 John 5. Another Christmas is upon us. Can you believe it? Feels like we just had one. I wonder if you ever have stopped to ask what Christmas is really all about. Of course we know it's not about presents and carols and parades and cookies. It's not about high credit card bills and time off of work. It's most certainly not about eggnog. That stuff is like drinking cream-flavored concrete. Christmas is not about Santa and elves. It's not about that awkward feeling of sitting with family you don't like and avoiding anything that might cause a blow-up like last year. It's not about lights on top of houses and trees on the inside. Both are strange if you stop to think about it. We know these things are not really what Christmas is all about. But did you know it's not even about a baby? Because baby Jesus doesn't exist anymore. Friends, Christmas is about victory. Christmas is about a great, holy, loving God who was victorious over evil in the resurrection of Christ. The Greek word for this that we're going to talk about today is Nike. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yes, some of you are wearing the symbol of this right now. The word Nike means victory. It's going to be in the text we look at today, so hopefully we'll actually remember this sermon. Christmas is about God's victory. Maybe you've heard the story. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, took on flesh, lived 33 years, fully obeying God and enjoying Him in every way. And everywhere He went, broken things got put back together. Sick people were healed. Lonely, broken-hearted, rejected people were welcomed. Big-headed, phony, religious arrogance was silenced. Women who had long been tossed aside were treated like the equals they'd always been. Poor people were given hope. Even children were loved and embraced. And most important, broken, guilty sinners were forgiven. It's as though as Jesus walked the earth, the light of heaven was dispelling the darkness of earth. But then, just days after Jesus walked or rode into Jerusalem as king, he was hoisted up on a cross and died a heinous, shameful death. For those closest to him, it seemed like good tried, but evil prevailed. From all appearances, good tried, but evil prevailed. But, my dear friends, the very thing that looked like defeat turned out to be the ultimate sign of victory. You see, three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious. That means, in the full scope of the Bible, that death and darkness and evil and the devil don't win. 
Death had always won up until this point, but not that time. Life prevailed. God won. That, my friends, is what Christmas is all about. God's victory over evil in the triumph of Christ. And this victory is not some abstract, otherworldly, ethereal concept. It's not a cold fact to sit in the ivory towers of academic debate. It's truth to enjoy and to proclaim to a world in desperate need of a Savior. Christmas is about victory, God's victory. And that victory can be yours too. Do you believe that? In fact, if you're a follower of Christ, that victory is already yours. Look with me at 1 John chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. Or... This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Brothers and sisters, today I'd love us to rejoice together that Jesus' victory is our victory. And for us to consider specifically how we can daily celebrate and live out that victory. In this one paragraph, John manages to tie together everything he has said thus far in his letter. It's like a Christmas present wrapped in the perfect bow. But like some of the presents you'll attempt to unwrap this week, this one is kind of hard to open. Upon first reading, the passage is a little confusing, isn't it? Here's what the paragraph says, if we just bullet point it out. Followers of Jesus believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if we believe, then we've already been born again. And if we love the Father, then we've been adopted into His family. And if we're in God's family, then we love everybody else who's been born again. And we know we love everyone else who's been born again when we love and obey God. And loving God is obeying God. Wow. I never did like the spinning teacups at Disneyland. And this feels an awful lot like spinning teacups. What's fascinating about this particular passage in 1 John is it tells us exactly how the victorious Christian life works. It tells us how God's victory is fleshed out as our victory in the stuff of everyday life. Now, if you've been here with us this fall, remember the original setting of this letter. These chapters were just part of a letter that a man named John sent to a group of churches spread throughout that portion of the world at the time. People in these churches had showed every outward indicator of being Christians. But then one day they turned away from the apostles' teachings about Jesus. And they claimed not to walk away from God, but to walk towards a deeper relationship with God. They said they had a deeper, superior knowledge of God and how to experience Him. They departed from the church. And they begged you to go with them too. 
And what was left was a group of people in the church who were nervous, insecure, and second-guessing their faith. Those things are understandable, right? Imagine half of us who we've known for years, given every indication that we're followers of God, begin to believe a very different message and claim that they have now heard from God and walk away from the assembling of God's people and beg us to go with them. Of course, that would be confusing. So John wrote this letter to say, here's how you can have assurance that you know Christ. And friends, there is no shortage of things that look like Christianity today, but in fact are not. And so this, this letter is still immensely helpful to us. John says to us, just like he said to that group, here's how you can know. But before we look at that, just step back to consider the bigger picture. This wonderful letter says that God says it's possible to know that you know God. What a tremendous thought. Isn't that incredible? You can know that you know God. There is a God and this God isn't hiding. He has revealed himself. And despite our willful rejection of him, he loves and he longs to be loved. He yearns for sinful people to have a joyful relationship with him and with each other. And he's very clearly told us how that can happen. That's really great news. And <laughs> so how do we know? How do we know that we know God? Well, throughout 1 John... John's repeatedly told us three ways, three issues. Three things that give us assurance that we share in Christ's victory. And if you're here today and you don't yet know Christ as your Savior, these are three things that can become yours if you'll give your life to Christ. Here's the three things he's told us. He said, followers of Jesus believe in the biblical gospel. They have, have faith. They trust God. Second, he said that followers of Jesus love God and love God's people. And finally, he said that followers of Jesus obey God. So belief or faith, love, and obedience. If your life is increasingly marked by these traits, then you can have great evidence that God, in fact, lives in you. Now, nearly everyone in this room is certainly more intelligent than me. I imagine you're thinking, Chuck... You've already told us this last week and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that. But the Apostle John says, no. He says, there's more still to tell you. And so what we want to look at today is not so much a new concept, but how do those pieces of faith and love and obedience work together? When when you look at your own life as a Christian or you look at another brother or sister in Christ, how is it that you can see the victorious life living out in that person? That's what John is attempting to tell us today. Integral to living in God's victory is an appreciation for how faith and love and obedience work together. And just like this passage is a little confusing... Our lives sometimes look a little confusing 
as we're seeking to know and enjoy and grow in Christ. It is simply not a straight line, is it? There are days of doubt and struggle and confusion. There's days of heartache and there's days of joy. But all of those pieces work together to give us assurance that we know God. In fact, in the mind of God, so tightly woven are faith and love and obedience that although they're not exactly the same thing, they don't exist apart from each other. The the expression of one rounds up into a manifestation of the other. In other words, faith that Jesus was victorious at the cross always eventually produces a love for God's people. And a love for God's people eventually always produces obedience to God. John Stott said it like this. Christian believers are God's children, born from above. God's children are loved by all who love God. Those who love God also keep His commandments. They keep His commandments because they overcome the world. They overcome the world because they're Christian believers born from above. And the teacup spins around again. It's subtle, but all of that is in this passage. This one paragraph says all of that. So in our remaining time, I'd love to see if I can help us understand how faith, love, and obedience are intertwined. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, even though you may not have been aware of this as it was happening to you, what John says is when you put faith in Christ, things happen in a particular order. They happened one, two, three, and four, even though you didn't know it and even though you may still not be aware that this is how it happened. But those four things happened this way. First, John tells us, is there's the new birth, which he's already talked to us about. This, of course, is not being physically born, but spiritually born. A big theological word for that is regeneration. It's God taking his life and giving it to you. This is God's gracious work of taking off our blinders of sin so that we see God's goodness and be awakened to the gospel. That's the very first thing that happens in this quest to know and love and live for God. How do we know that? We'll look at verse 1 again. Everyone who believes, so current, active, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It already has happened to you. So the next thing that took place is faith. Faith is both belief that the facts of the gospel are true and actively placing your trust in Christ. The two must go together. Faith and repentance join, and that's when salvation occurs. One of the reasons I'm thankful to live in Tempe, Arizona, is that there is not a massive... ah, I did it again. Is Danny here? It's Danny here. She's not here. I was convinced I would not do it today. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's good. <laughs> Faith here in Tempe, Arizona, is often understood as both acknowledging that the facts of the gospel are true and actively trusting Christ. Why? Well, because that's the way it works. But why is that displayed here 
in some ways more potently than other parts of the country because it's not cultural to follow Christ here. Following Christ in Tempe, Arizona, if you live the Christian life, is going to cost you something. You, you will be alienated. You will lose friends. You will be thought of as a weirdo. In other parts of the country where it's cultural to go to, to, go to church, but not to live for Christ, so just to show up to an activity once a week, you can assent to the facts but not have to trust, and no one will ever know the difference. It's not that way here, and I'm thankful for that. Faith is saying, yes, I believe that Jesus came, died, and rose again. But it's also saying, those aren't just facts on a shelf. That's what I trust everything that I am and have, too. How does that happen? What happens because someone receives new birth, they see the glory of Christ, and they willfully choose to put faith and trust in Jesus. What happens next? Well, John says that love comes, that A deep love for God is born out of appreciation for His grace. And that moves us to love other people, particularly Christians. You see, when we see how much God has loved us in Christ, and we realize how we really are no better than anybody else, then the natural response is to love other people, particularly other people who have shared that experience of coming to know Christ. And finally, John says that leads to obedience. And in fact, he talks about obedience so closely to love that he says to obey God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. And so to do that with increasing joy, then we know his commands are not burdensome because they're changing our very life. True Christianity exists in that order. New birth, faith, love, obedience. Now, we could talk about each of those truths for for hours. We could intricately explain each one. And the Bible does that for us. There's no shortage of information on faith, love, and obedience. But instead of doing that, which I'm sure you would just love to do, I would rather us take a few minutes to consider some concrete examples of how those things flesh themselves out. Because here's what John's saying. He's saying, how do you know that you know God? He's saying, there is a way to know. The way you know is, is your life marked by faith? Do you believe, do you mentally agree that Jesus came and died and rose again? And have you placed your faith and confidence and trust in Christ through repentance? If so, that's the first test. You have faith. The second way he says you can know that you know God is, are you increasingly loving? Now, not love in the touchy-feely way we tend to think of love, but love as sacrificial service for the good of other people. Do you love God? Do you love other Christians? Do you love people who don't know God? If you look back on your life, are you more likely to do something for the good of somebody else today than you used to? And is that driven not by a desire to be accepted or thought of as particularly wonderful, but simply out of the free love that God's given you? If so, then John says, you have 
Christ living in you. And finally, he says, do you obey? Now, of course, not perfectly, but is your life increasingly marked by submission to God and turning away from yourself? Faith, love, obedience. Those three things come together in the life of a Christian to form a snowball that rolls down the hill and gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we do one upon the other upon the other. Are you with me? All right, all three of you are. So here's what it looks like. I tried to think of some examples in the life of the church. There's no way to come up with every one of them. If you're not named, it doesn't mean I don't love you. But here's what it looks like. When Scott Wakefield meets weekly with a person who does not know Christ to explore Christianity simply by reading the Gospel of Mark with him, Scott is expressing faith that God can speak through his word. Why would he do that if he didn't believe that? And he's loving that person that he's sitting reading the Bible with. Why would he do that if he didn't love them? And loving that person is actually obeying God. God says to share the gospel, to make disciples. So as Scott loves by obeying, he's reminded that God gave him the gift of being born again. And his faith is strengthened. So all three things work together in the same way. Faith, love, and obedience remind Scott that he's an adopted child of God. Thank you, Scott, for that example. When Judy Hernandez, is she here? Are they traveling? Judy. Judy, when you show up every single Sunday with a birthday gift for some brother or sister, you're not simply saying, gifts are cool, look at me. Instead, here's what Judy is so clearly communicating. God has changed me. I love you selflessly because God loved me first. God gave me the gift of his son. He gave me the gift of salvation. And now my heart overflows to give good gifts to you. You see, Judy knows that she was bound to sin, but God gave her the gift of new life. She was awakened to how selfishness really is stupidity and selflessness is the path to love and joy in life, ultimately seen in God's gift of Jesus on the cross. And so out of joyful love for God and the wonder of being a part of this family, Judy obeys God by loving her brothers and sisters. So for Judy, faith, love, and obedience work together as she hands someone another little gift. And this reminds her that she's God's adopted daughter. Doesn't it, Judy? Now let me be clear, giving gifts doesn't save Judy. However, over time, her love and obedience are used by God to whisper in her ear, Judy, you're mine. The gift that I gave you, you're expressing that as you give gifts to others. You're adopted into my family and I love you. And that increases her faith. That's the way these things work. Now my next victim. When Terry Dockham, is Terry here? Terry. Terry, say something. You have such a cool voice. Excellent. 
When Terry at Gospel Community says, Chuck, can I get you a plate of food? Because you're in that boot. He's not just being kind, although he is that. He's really saying, God loves me with a perfect love. And you are my brother. I love you because God loves you. Now understand, Terry, you are almost old enough to be my dad. And it humbles me when a grown, mature, godly man offers to get my food for me. It's a little embarrassing, honestly. (laughs) But your care for me, brother, is an act of obedience and love for God because God commanded us to outdo one another by showing honor. So every time he does that, Terry is taking one deeper step into death of self, and that reveals the life of Christ in him. Is there anything more Christ-like than joyful, menial service to a brother or sister in Christ? As Terry chooses to love, his obedience is an expression of love and confirms his faith in Christ. And that reminds Terry that he's born again. You see, faith, love, and obedience, they all work together. Are you getting the picture? Now, do any of those three people always want to do those three things? Of course not. I imagine there's days that Judy is tired and she doesn't want to wrap another gift. I imagine there's times that Terry thinks, just get off your rear end and get your own food. (laughs) I imagine there's days that Scott is exhausted from legal briefs and doesn't want to read another document and be asked more questions. But that's when the life of Christ is displayed. As we do things that require us to say, I can't, but God can. And then we take another notch in the step of faith. I could repeat these examples over hundreds of times in the way God is displayed through you, Tertone Mill. New birth, faith, love, and obedience, they all work together to provide assurance of salvation. One more, and I'll do this quickly. I won't name anyone in particular here because I don't know who you are. When you give sacrificially in the offering and God multiplies that gift to cause ministry to flourish, you're not simply saying, this is my duty. You better not abuse it. Oh, no. You see, we give with joy. And when we do that, we're saying, God has given me the gift of salvation, and I want to see that gift spread. God has not withheld anything good from me. God will provide for me. I give because Jesus gave. I love you, church. Because Jesus first loved me. That in our particular culture is an extreme act of love and obedience. Is it not? We're told every day, particularly at this time of the year, the more you have, the better you are. And there's never enough. And bigger, newer, faster, nicer is always better. But every time we give, we say that's a lie. That is not true. And so... It's also faith when we give that the message this church teaches kids in Gospel Project, that it models to youth, that it preaches in our worship gathering, that it builds into the lives of interns and residents as we prepare to send them out, 
that it evidences in the missions we live out as gospel communities. All of those things require money. And that money is an expression of trust and confidence in God's plan to grow God's church. So faith, love, and obedience, as we express it in our giving, reminds us that we're sons and daughters of God. So I thank God for that. Though seemingly small, all of these things demonstrate the reality of Christ's victory over the world. When we choose love over hate, selfishness over self, selflessness over selfishness, giving away instead of hoarding, we're doing very unnatural things. We're doing supernatural things. And that puts Christ on display. Evil doesn't win. God wins. And we can be assured of that because God brings faith, love, and obedience together. That's what John aims to say in this text. Now, in our final remaining minutes, I'd love to think with you about a couple of ways to apply this truth. So here are four ways you can think about applying this message that is in John about living in the victory that Christ has provided. Number one, find something to write down on. The words new birth, faith, love, and obedience. Stick them on a card. Write them on a post-it note. Put them in your iPhone. Write yourself an email. Send yourself a text. Whatever you do to get those words into your head. Because the cyclical nature of how those things play themselves out in our lives will be immensely encouraging to you as you seek to grow as a Christian. You see, that cycle doesn't stop. Because when you express faith in Christ when somebody tells you you're crazy, when you trust God in the middle of a difficult circumstance, when life isn't turning out the way you thought it would, but you confess to God, I believe that you have good for me and you know what's best. Then every time you do that, that's increasing the faith that God's given you. And every time we choose to love each other, particularly when we're not displaying loveliness, God uses that to increase our faith and our love. And every time we obey God, the same thing happens. And as we obey, when we don't want to obey, we find We're reminded that God is in us, that we've been born again, and that increases faith, and that leads to more love, and that leads to more obedience, and the snowball rolls down the hill. And we're given more and more and more confidence that God is in us, not because we're great, but because He's great. So get those words into your head. Let's massage them down into our vocabulary as a church so that when we see them in each other's lives, we can speak them to each other. Praise God when you see his evidence, the evidence of his work in you and point it out to other members of the family. I hope we never get over the wonder and amazement of being believers. We do not earn it. We don't deserve it. But there can be no doubts that we have it as those things play themselves out in our lives. Number two, be especially mindful of what happens when you fail. Be especially mindful of what happens when you fail. No one lives out faith, love, and obedience perfectly. No one. In fact, I would venture to say no one makes it a day. 
we will always, as believers, continue to struggle with sin. When we fail God, we're not to merely try harder. That's not Christianity. When we fail God, we don't say, God, I've failed you and I'm going to fix it all by myself. That is not Christianity. Instead, we run to God in prayer and we praise Him that He is victorious and that He will forgive us as we confess our sins to Him. We rely on His victory, not to earn our own, but to be reminded of His. And Jesus' victory encourages us that we can try again, that we can rely on Him. You see, assurance comes not that I trusted Christ somewhere in the past, but that I trust Him today. Assurance comes not that I loved God somewhere in the past, but that I love Him today. Assurance comes not that I obeyed God somewhere in the past, but that by grace through faith I'm obeying Him today. And strangely, but beautifully, assurance comes that when I fail in those things, and I will and you will, that when we fail instead of despair, instead of running away, instead of thinking we've lost God because we failed, we're reminded to get to our knees, to repent, to confess, to thank God for forgiveness, and then to try again. So you see, even our failures increase our faith and our love and our obedience. So what happens in you when you fail? You pretend that you didn't. If so, then you're short-circuiting that cycle of growth. Do Do you run to other believers? And do you expect them to fix it for you? If so, then you short-circuit that cycle of faith and love and obedience. Or do you run to God and say, God, you have loved me perfectly and I sinned, I failed today. I confess that to you was wrong and enable me by your grace to rise again. If that's your response, then even in your failure, Jesus is glorified. Even in your failure, you grow and faith is increased. And so by grace, we can try again. Even in failure, there's victory. Number three, I encourage you to sit with brothers and sisters in Christ who have walked with Jesus longer than you have. And be encouraged by God's faithfulness to them. This cycle of obedience and faith and love is more clear in people who have walked with Jesus longer than it is with those of us who are newer in the faith. Why? Not rhetorical. They've had more years of experience. So they've had more opportunity to see God be faithful. They have had more opportunity to fail and they've taken up on those opportunities. (laughs) They have had more opportunity to see God intervene in crises and be faithful. They've had more opportunity to experience forgiveness and God intervening. They've had more opportunity to receive the love and care from the body of Christ. Why? Because they've walked with Him longer. And so those relationships are invaluable. One of the great blessings we have as a family of faith is that 
we're not all in our teens, in our 20s, in our 30s. There are people here who have loved Jesus a long time. And you can sit with them and invite them to tell you their story, which is God's story of victory in them and that becoming their victory. I'm always richly encouraged by our brothers and sisters who have walked with Jesus longer than me. Finally, and this is immensely practical, I would encourage you to plan now to plug into Disciple Makers 1 or 2, which are our Wednesday night classes that will take place in January. Dozens of members have already found a remarkable increase in their understanding of the Scriptures through these classes. They've gained the practical tools needed to encourage each other in the gospel and how to speak it to people who don't know it yet. They've gained an expanded vision of God's plan for the church and learned how to rely upon Him in the endless opportunities we have in everyday life to speak the gospel to non-Christians. We want to help you learn how to love well. And that's what those classes are for. They'll start on January 7th, and because of high interest, we'll be able this coming semester to offer both the second semester and the first semester at the same time. And everybody says, ooh, and ah. Look on the church website for more information. You can find it there. Friends, Christmas is not about a baby. That baby did come. That baby rose again. And that baby perfectly obeyed the Father, unlike us. Therefore, that baby, that man, God himself, was worthy to die in our place. And so, if you'll trust in him who's risen again, then his victory becomes your victory. And that victory is not just yours when you die and you go to heaven. It's yours today. And you can become increasingly sure that his victory already is yours as faith and love and obedience work themselves together. Let's pray. if you'll take a moment just in quiet, prayerful reflection with you and the Father, asking Him to what degree you've been living in this victorious life. And if there's anything that needs to be repented of, lies that need to be set aside, or maybe even if you're not a believer yet, if you would trust in Christ today. Let's pray.
Father, we would readily admit that some days it does not appear to us that this is a victorious life. Some days we have doubts and struggle and insecurity. But your scriptures tell us the truth always. Jesus really did leave heaven, come to earth, take on flesh, live out the law fully, perfectly in every way because he was intimately living out union with you. Everywhere he went, broken things got put back together. The kingdom of God was ushered in. And he really did die and rise again. The scriptures tell us that that's the truth. The history of the world tells us that that's the truth. And simply as we look at other brothers and sisters, we hear that's the truth. Father, we know that we live out faith and love and obedience imperfectly. But even in that imperfection, as we are drawn to repentance, we're brought back to you. We're reminded again that you really are victorious. So I would pray right now specifically for the Christian in the room who feels beaten up, broken down, enslaved by some particular sin. Their life, if they look at it, does not look like victory. It looks like defeat. Maybe that sin is deep bitterness. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's the desire to get out of a marriage. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's the inability to turn from anger or an addiction to porn. God, you tell us in Romans 6 that now as Christians, this victory is ours. And we would pray, God, that as even as I pray and my brothers and sisters are confessing their sins to you, that you would grant them assurance of faith if they have it. And God, that they would invite other believers into that struggle and that today they would know your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that stopping that sin would become, in a sense, less important than loving you more. For when our love for you is increasing, then we'll say no to sin. When we're finding that life with you is better than a life of sin, then we'll be tapping into your power to say no to sin. So we pray, God, for increased love, for increased faith, and therefore for increased obedience. And God, may we not fight those struggles alone, but faithfully with each other. And I would pray also, Lord, for the person here who has believed they have faith or who has never considered even a desire for faith. 
that today you would grant them that gift of new birth so that they could see the goodness of the gospel and respond to you in faith. And God, as we leave in just a moment and we will go out into this Christmas week, our number one desire wouldn't be for time off work or for the amassing of more stuff or for really good food. But it would be to put your love on display to a world that's broken and needy. So we pray that by faith we could live the victorious life and that others would be drawn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.